Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, the passage that we looked into this morning for the Scripture reading. We are continuing our series through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning as we come to the text of our Lord's birth, it's a shame that some would look at this and say, wait a minute, you're jumping the gun. Christmas isn't for a couple of months. Well, guess what? The the truth of Christ's advent is a truth that pertains to every day throughout the year because it's God's gift to us. It is the provision for our salvation. It is an expression of how much God loved this world that He was willing to send His Son into this world to take on human flesh, to live among us, ultimately to die for us, to raise again, to be seated at the right hand of God, and to be coming again. This is all a part of the story, and we don't want to relegate the story of Christ's birth to a few days in December, if you're really pushing it, maybe a few days into January, and then be done with it for the year. This is such an important truth for us to grasp. That's why I want us to look at this text with fresh eyes. Not just remembering the nostalgia of the Christmas story, but seeing it for what it is, a revelation of God as to how His plan of salvation expressed at the beginning of the Old Testament as a thread it runs throughout the Old Testament. And now that we've transitioned into the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of so many prophecies We see hopes realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Now this morning, the text that we're looking into really is summed up with this title, God with us. Matthew shares with us the complex way that God sees to the fact that Jesus, fully human, and yet fully God, comes to us to be our Savior. And He shares with us some of the mechanisms involved in that, some of the plans that God had. But most of all, what I want us to think about as we start looking at this text is this. God works in unexpected ways. It's said that hindsight is twenty-twenty, and a lot of times we can look back and we can see an event and we can say, well, this is why the event happened. Now I understand. I see with clarity all of the things that led up to it and why it happened. Well, this is one of those times with the birth of Jesus Christ. We can see what God had as a mystery for so long, now revealed. And we can see God addressing human need and providing for us in the birth, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to Matthew's account in verse 18, first of all, what we find are the circumstances leading up to Jesus' birth. Now, you're going to notice a different take from Matthew as opposed to Luke. And the purpose we went into a little bit last week as we saw that Matthew focuses on the legal claim that Jesus has to the throne as Messiah. He traces the lineage of Joseph. And so, in keeping with that, he continues the narrative from Joseph's perspective. And I think it's an important perspective for us to grasp 
It shares with us how Joseph was informed of Christ's birth, the reason for Christ's birth. It shares all of that with us, and it gives us a, a, a different view. By the way, when it comes to the Gospels, you'll find that each of the Gospels will have a different take on some events. It's been compared to four blind men going up to an elephant. The first blind man goes up to the trunk and it says, oh, an elephant must be sort of like a snake, right? And then another blind man goes up to a leg and wraps his arms around a leg and says, oh, it's like a tree trunk. And then the other one goes up to the side of the elephant and touches the elephant and says, oh, it must be like a wall. And then finally, the last one goes up to the tail and says, it's kind of like a donkey tail. Each one is accurate in what they present, but we don't get the bigger picture until we bring all of those perspectives together, and that's very much what we find with the Gospels. We understand more of who Jesus is by studying all of the Gospels and getting that full picture. And so here in this Gospel, as we see the introduction of Christ's birth, we begin in the 18th verse, and Matthew cuts right to the chase when he says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So as we're being led into this narrative, he's sharing with us his purpose in writing this. And the purpose is to give us a perspective on the birth of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to grasp this perspective. And he goes on and he says this, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this full verse gives us an intro into what Matthew is going to lead us into. And what he wants us to grasp as we come into this text is that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Had Joseph been the biological father of Jesus, Jesus would have been a man, just like anybody else. What we'll find as Jesus begins his ministry and continues it, there's always this lingering accusation that Joseph is really his father. What Matthew wants to clear up right out of the gate is this, Joseph was not. He was betrothed to Mary, in other words, engaged, but they had not come together yet. They had not come to the place to where they had entered into a sexual union, and so therefore, Joseph cannot be the father. You see, in first century culture, in particular the Jewish culture, when a man and a woman were betrothed, they remained sexually pure until the wedding day. On the wedding night, they would consummate the marriage, and that was described as coming together. And so what the Word of God is sharing with us in this text is Joseph and Mary had not. This is to clarify that Jesus' birth was unique. It was different. It was unexpected to a large degree by Joseph himself. But there's something else at play in this. At first, Joseph, as we'll see the narrative unfold, didn't believe that Mary had remained pure. Which means 
that he would have rejected Jesus initially in this narrative. Perhaps Matthew's hope in bringing this to light and sharing these truths with us was to address the many who doubted that Mary had indeed remained a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And just as Joseph had changed his perspective, perhaps the hope was that all of the people who heard Matthew's gospel, read Matthew's gospel, would come to the same conclusion that Joseph did, that Jesus is unique. Now, a question as we get into the part of this passage that's going to talk about this unique birth. Matthew very simply says here in the 18th verse that before they came together, she was found to be with child. And notice, for clarification, right at the conclusion of that thought, we find from the Holy Spirit. What the Word of God is sharing with us is something very unique and important about the Lord's birth. That as we said, it's not a physical birth brought about by a man and a woman. It is a unique birth that is brought about by a miracle. And that miracle was done by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think about what's being communicated in this text. We have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit involved in Jesus' birth. God the Father sent Jesus. God the Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive this unique person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was able to take on human flesh through this miracle and become both God and man by what God had designed in this passage of Scripture now played out and experienced. Some Scripture that speaks of Jesus taking on human flesh, I think, gives further light to what's going on here. In John 1.1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word in this passage, of course, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we drop down to the 14th verse, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How did the Word become flesh? The virgin birth. This passage of Scripture that we're looking into right now, it is the explanation of what John says in his gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that a beautiful thought? But it's more than just a thought. It's the actuality. It is the truth of what happened with Jesus at the virgin birth. Something else we find in Paul's writing. In speaking of Jesus, it says this, who, though he, referring to Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The way this is framed in the original language, what it means is this, he emptied himself in order to take on human flesh. So I want you to think about the ramifications of this. Jesus is brought 
into the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. He existed prior to being Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, but now he has added to his deity humanity by this miraculous work of the Spirit of God. And this is the one we know and worship as Jesus. Now the text goes on, and as we come to the 19th verse, we find a choice that Joseph had to make about Mary. You see, in his culture, an unplanned pregnancy was a shame to the family and to the community. You see, in the first century, as I said, when a couple was betrothed, the arrangement was generally a young woman, sometimes as young as 13 or 14, was pledged to a man several years older than her, often. And there was a year from the time of betrothal until the time of the marriage bed, the marriage day. And during that time, the woman would live in the father's house. The man would live either in his own house or in his father's house. And there would be no sexual activity between the betrothed. There was that waiting period that was to be characterized by purity as they awaited for the day when they would claim one another and enter into the bond of marriage. Now, it was during that time, in the 19th verse that we read, and her husband Joseph, being a man unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So do you catch the narrative? Here is Joseph remaining pure, looking forward to the marriage that he would enter into with Mary. It had been arranged. He was upholding his end of the bargain. But there is a discovery that Mary's pregnant. Divorce yourself from the story for a moment and, and think about Joseph's response. There would have been a feeling of betrayal. There would have been a feeling of shame, disappointment, perhaps even anger. As he looks on what happened with Mary, I'm sure there was confusion. I'm sure he was asking, you know, God, what, what has happened here? You know, I, I, I thought she was different than she is. How could this be? We can understand Joseph's feeling as he processes this. But something amazing about Joseph that we find in this story is that he was a just man. Now, what that means is this. According to Jewish law, something had to be done about infidelity. Joseph had to deal with a pregnancy by the woman that he is engaged to, that he did not produce. So if he's just, he has to do something. So he has three options. Option number one, Joseph could very publicly 
bring out what Mary had done and given her a public trial and a public divorce. Had they followed Old Testament law, that could have led to her stoning. If you remember the story of a woman who was caught in adultery, those who accused her brought stones to stone her. Now, this had diminished under Roman rule, but it was still a possibility. And had Joseph been vindictive, he could have done that. Joseph had another option. He could have just said, oh, well, things happen. Let's move on. We'll go ahead and get married anyway. But there's a problem with that. Number one, that would have put his whole family in the place of shame because he wasn't dealing with it properly or justly. He was basically wimping out. (laughs) The third option was the option that Joseph chose, and that was to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, they were only engaged. Why would he have to give a certificate of divorce if they're only engaged? The culture was different than ours. Where we can choose to break an engagement, in the first century, that engagement had teeth. It was real. It was important. And you were committing to marry the person that you were engaged to. That's why he's referred to as husband before they had ever come together and consummated the marriage. So, another option. Have two witnesses write out a certificate of divorce, quietly give it to Mary, and end the betrothal. Joseph looked at those three options, and the option that he settled in on was the option of divorcing her quietly. Look at how Matthew frames this in the text. He was a just man unwilling to put her to shame. So there's compassion here, right? He must have cared very deeply about Mary to be angry, hurt, disappointed, and yet to want to spare her the shame. But then, notice it goes on to say, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, what does it mean to resolve? The decision had been made. This is the path I will follow. This is the course that I'm going to take. I'm going to break the engagement. We're done. I'm going to spare her the public humiliation and shame of a very public trial. But it's done. The dynamics of this amaze me. When we look at Joseph's response and he's thinking, what happened? (laughs) Why, Why this when I've been faithful and good? You know, it made me stop and think about how when the God God's plan unfolds, very often very complicated and very difficult things happen to very good people. And we stop and we look at it and we say, well, why, why is God doing this? That's our human response, right? That's our normal response to something that isn't going down the way I figured it would go down. But what we see in this story is God had a higher purpose that would ultimately save not only the world, but Joseph and Mary. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so we need to understand that God's purpose and God's plan sometimes includes confusion and pain and difficulty. 
But there's a higher purpose that's being fulfilled that we may not be privy to right away. And during that time where we're trying to figure it out, but remaining faithful, that's a complex time, a difficult time, but one that a person of faith clings to. What we're going to see in this story is Joseph was definitely a person of faith. Because as the story moves on, we find that God begins to change Joseph's heart, and he does it by revealed truth. So let's look at this text together, verse 20, where we see that, first of all, Joseph had to choose to trust God's Word. Verse 20, as he considered these things, and by the way, the word considered doesn't mean he hasn't made up his mind. He's probably just thinking of how do I execute this? I've already made the decision, now how do I put it into play? Behold, now let me share a little something about scriptural narrative. When you see the word behold, that means there's a game changer coming. There's a huge pivot that's about to be made. Listen up. Look at what God has to say. And that's what Matthew is saying right here in the text. And this is what he says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, when we look at the dramatic way in which God communicates to Joseph, it stands out. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we will see God speaking to people, and they're only pages apart, so we look at it and we say, well, God must speak to people all the time. There's been a gap of 400 years between the last prophet and Matthew. God has been silent for 400 years. In fact, even when we look throughout Scripture, those times where God appears to people to give them truth, it's pivotal. It's a change in direction for them or for the nation. And here it's a change in direction for the world. So what this angel says to Joseph is significant. Notice the angel begins by saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, this reinforces what Matthew has already said, that genealogy that he gives from Joseph back to David. It gives us insight that that was the purpose of Matthew's genealogy. But secondarily, it's also a reminder that you are from a blessed household. You are in the lineage of David. God has made promises to David, and as one of the descendants of David, he has made promises to you. So rest in this. Take hold of this. What I'm about to share with you is directed to you as Joseph, the son of David. And then he shares this thought. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Think of the fear that Joseph felt. A fear of how the community would perceive him. By the way, I believe that even after Mary and Joseph shared with the community that there was a work, a miracle that had been done, how many people do you think really bought that? I mean, there is gossip. 
there is that tendency that we as people have to believe the worst about other people but expect them to believe the best about us, right? Joseph had a name in the community that he had to uphold and that name would be destroyed by the events that are taking place. While Joseph grasped that, yes, God is doing something unique, that didn't allay the fear of all that the community would visit upon him. And you know, as I think about this in reference to us, how we feel about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, certainly isn't going to be accepted by the community around us. We're seeing an environment that is developing more and more in our country where you are viewed as foolish and unsophisticated if you have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph is being reassured by this messenger of God that he can take Mary as his wife. In other words, complete that commitment that he came into at the betrothal and now awaits the day of their consummation. But then Matthew goes on to say this was from the angel. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, Mary was not unfaithful. There is a work of God, a miracle that has taken place, and that work is from the Holy Spirit. Now, why is the virgin birth so important? Why is it an essential doctrine of our faith and our church? Apart from the virgin birth, as we said earlier, you just have a normal human being being born. There's nothing special about them. They're just born like every other person. With a virgin birth, something quite different takes place. You have the union of God and man bringing the God-man, Jesus Christ. Why is it important that Jesus is both God and man? Number one, the Scripture teaches it in other passages of Scripture. Again and again and again, the deity of Jesus Christ is upheld as an essential doctrine. Apart from the virgin birth, that's an impossibility. It can't happen. It can't exist. But secondarily, had Jesus died as just a man born into sin, His death on the cross would not have accomplished the salvation of the world. He had to be the God-man being sacrificed on the cross, human in that He sheds His blood, but God in that He shares the benefit of forgiveness and coming right relationship with the Father. That's all brought about because Jesus is the God-man. So to diminish the virgin birth is to diminish the very crux of the gospel message. So that's why Matthew is taking time to establish the truth of this. He wants not only Joseph to understand this, but this is in the eternal Word of God. So he wants all people in all time to understand who Jesus is. And so that's why so much precision is used in this discussion about this union between the Holy Spirit and Mary, but then Joseph's response to it and the change that brought about Joseph's change of heart 
in putting Mary away. So here's the angel. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 21. As we come to verse 21, the angel goes on to share this. She will bear a son. She, referring to Mary, will bear a son, referring to Jesus. And then notice this. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now here is a description of the purpose and the work of Jesus. While Jesus was a common name in the first century, this is a unique Jesus. He is described in this text as the one who will save his people from their sins. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that salvation comes. He is the only path to experiencing forgiveness. That was true in Joseph's time, and it's true today. If you want to have your sin forgiven and to have a right relationship with the Father, it only takes place through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And so here, Joseph is given a glimpse into that, but there's something else going on. The naming of Jesus. See, something that we don't recognize in our culture, but was certainly true in the first, cult, first century culture, is this. When someone adopted a child, the father had the naming rights, the adoptive father. This was an instruction not just so Joseph wouldn't have to go through the book of names and pick one out. This was an instruction that had legal rights associated with it. What he was saying to Joseph is, you will adopt him as your child, as your son. And we all know why, because of last week. Last week when we went through the genealogy and we saw that Matthew shares with us the legal lineage of Jesus from Solomon to Joseph, unless Jesus is adopted by Joseph, he doesn't honor the pledge that God had made to David, but through the curse of Jeconiah had been broken. Joseph's adoption of Jesus resolves that issue. And so this is what we see going on here. This command for him to name him, not only because of what he would do, save people from their sins, but also assuring that legal claim that Jesus has to the throne was all a part of God's purpose and God's plan. Then we come to the next part of this passage. What we find in this narrative is that this completely fulfills God's promise through Isaiah. Something we're going to see again and again and again in the book of Matthew are these words that we find in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Listen, our salvation was not an afterthought. It wasn't God looking and saying, hmm, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? Oh, uh, we'll just have the virgin birth and send my son and it will all be resolved. It was a plan that God had put into place from the fall. Remember when God was speaking to the serpent and to Adam and to Eve in the garden, this prophecy was given in the book of Genesis, I will put enmity between you. Now here he's speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman 
And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many Bible teachers believe, and I would agree with them, this is the proto-evangelium, in other words, the first gospel. Right at the fall, God's provision is communicated. God's plan for our salvation was put into place before the world began. This is the wisdom of God. But what we find here is a specific passage of Scripture that shares with us the virgin birth was not a new solution that God came up with. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied the virgin birth hundreds of years before. Isaiah 7.14 is the passage that we find, and it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is the exact passage that Isaiah quotes, or excuse me, Matthew quotes from Isaiah right here in this text. And we need to have a little bit of context with this. Some of you may have been exposed to other translations where it renders this, and the woman shall conceive and bear a son. The Hebrew word that is translated in Isaiah as virgin is a word that can communicate just a young woman. But in every passage where it is quoted in the New Testament, it gives the specific Greek word virgin in each of the passages that translates it. And here's something more. Well before the New Testament, there was a version of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint, supposedly put together by 70 Greek scholars. And they would have been fully aware of Hebrew, and they would have been fully aware of Greek. And so, here are people more contemporary to Isaiah than people in 2018, 2019, who look at a Hebrew text and say it can refer to a young woman. And guess what word they use in the Septuagint? Virgin. They would have understood its meaning. So as Isaiah is sharing with us in this text that a virgin will give birth, this is a prophecy that is now fulfilled he says, the birth of Jesus to Mary, who conceived Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit, that is the fulfillment of what God had promised. And look at what that promise produced. They will call his name Emmanuel. And just in case we don't know what Emmanuel means, the translation is given to us right in that 23rd verse, which means God with us. Why is the virgin birth necessary? Apart from the virgin birth, there cannot be God with us, God who is fully human, but yet fully man. That is God's solution, prophesied and now fulfilled. That's the point that Matthew wants us to grasp, that Jesus is more than just a man. Later in the book of Isaiah, in the ninth chapter, in speaking of Jesus' birth, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Pretty clear, isn't it? That Jesus is unique. He is different. He is God with us. Final point of this passage. When we come to verses 24 and 25, we find the faithfulness of Joseph. He complies with God's higher purpose. Look at what verse 24 goes on to say. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Obedience. Look, Joseph could have just looked and said, well, isn't that interesting? I'm going to still do what I want to do. But he didn't. He responded to God's revealed truth, and he chose to honor what God had revealed to him. And his actions went along with his beliefs. You know, there's such an important message in this for us. It's important to not just have the right theology, but to have actions that are based on that theology. Joseph acted on it by being obedient, facing the rejection of the culture around him, facing the gossips, facing all of the people that were having a better plan. Remember, Nazareth was a small community. Can you imagine what those people did to him as he made this decision to be obedient to God? Second-guessing, constantly haranguing him about the decision that he had made, but he took Mary as his wife. And then look at verse 25. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son. While Joseph was entitled, once the marriage day came, to consummate the marriage, he refused. It was not until after the birth of Jesus that Joseph would consummate. Now, an important sidebar that I want to take. There are some traditions that teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin. There's a word in here that discredits that teaching, and it's the word until. We know that Joseph and Mary finally consummated their union, became husband and wife, and other passages in the book of Matthew are going to speak of brothers and sisters that Jesus had. It was from Joseph and Mary. It says this, while he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Pretty clear that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. We also find this passage of Scripture, Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son, by the way, that was a slam at the virgin birth as far as Jesus, by Jesus' detractors? Translation, hey, isn't he that illegitimate kid that Joseph took on? It goes on to say, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? You see how Satan used the disbelief of others. But secondarily, we also see in this the fact that Mary is not a perpetual virgin. 
Now, this doctrine came about because people wanted to venerate, elevate Mary. She was a vessel of God that we should be thankful for, who took a great step in obedience in continuing with what God was doing in her. She stayed by Jesus' side from birth until crucifixion. Mary was a remarkable woman. And I'm thankful for her heart and for her faithfulness. But she was a woman that God used and that Joseph married and produced other children with. So what do we find as the takeaway in this passage? As we look at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, what leaps out to me is the faith of Joseph, the trust in the Word of God, the ability to continue in faithfulness during a very difficult situation. We need to take that same approach in life. There are things that God is going to do that He may explain to us and that He may not remain faithful. But above that, we see the person of Jesus Christ revealed in this text as both God and man, a human mother brought about by the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who existed before time itself as Jesus, adding to his deity humanity so that he could live among us die on the cross for us, that we might find salvation. So that last point I want to encourage you to think about. God went to great lengths to see to your salvation. It's not something you can procure by yourself. not something you can earn. not something you can be good enough to somehow attain to. Our salvation brings the forgiveness of sin. How? by the provision of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, that we might receive forgiveness. He came as Jesus to save his people from their sin. Have you received Jesus as your Savior today? Have you seen him for who he is from the Scripture and taken that right relationship with God through him? If you haven't, there's opportunity for you. We would love the opportunity to share with you how you can know that you have a right standing with God through Jesus Christ. Just talk to me or to Dan or to TJ or to John who did the scripture reading. Any one of us would love the opportunity to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the clarity with which this text expresses the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Thank you that he came to save his people from their sins, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.